will join me please in Luke chapter 20. Luke 20, as we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke, we'll be looking this morning at verses 20 through 26 in Luke chapter 20. The title of our sermon is Dual Citizens. And our key words for our worshipers in training are tax, Caesar, and citizen. During World War II... The Western Allies had a very tense relationship with the Soviet Union, to say the least. There was very little trust, there was very little in common between the two. However, they all had at least one thing in common, and that was a desire to end the Nazi regime of Adolf Hitler. And so the Western Allies worked together with the Soviet forces And the fiercely anti-communist British Prime Minister Winston Churchill declared, if Hitler invaded hell, I would make at least a favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. Churchill and President Franklin Roosevelt on the U.S. side were both operating under a very well-known proverb. It's not a biblical proverb, but one of ours. And it's this. The enemy of mine enemy is my friend. In other words, there are certain enemies so worth defeating that a relationship with another unfavorable party is worth the risk if it means we can defeat our common foe. Now this plays out in many ways through our daily life here on earth. Business partnerships sometimes and deals. Companies sometimes partner with their competitors or work together in some fashion against another competitor who may be stronger or more profitable. We see it in political posturing where members of Congress rally together with the opposite political party to support, support or oppose certain policies. We even see it in something as meaningless as sports. If you're into a specific sport or even more so a specific team, you have... You have a desire always to see them win. Or if you're opposed to another team, you're happy to see them lose no matter who they're playing. It's this philosophy, this idea. The enemy of mine enemy is my friend. That's the foundation of the relationship we see in our text this morning between the Pharisees and the group called the Herodians. Now, Luke doesn't mention here the Herodians specifically by name. However, in the parallel passages to this in Matthew and Mark, we learn that the Herodians were present with the Pharisees in a wicked plot to entrap Jesus. The Herodians were a group of pro-Roman men. They may not have been agents of Herod, but were in the very least sympathetic to his regime. So when you think of the Pharisees and you think of the Herodians, there aren't many groups you would expect to find opposed to one another as much as they were. It was like the U.S. and the Soviet Union during World War II. The Pharisees were very nationalistic when it came to Israel. They were longing for a physical messianic kingdom and the overthrow of the Roman Empire. The Herodians, on the other hand, were in full support of Rome and all that Rome stood for. 
The Pharisees were the most rigid of the Jews and were the religious right of the day, while the Herodians were very liberal and secularly minded in their convictions. The Pharisees were cautiously opposed to Rome while the Herodians accommodated Rome at every opportunity. So they're opposed on everything else. However, the two groups found a common enemy. In this case, they found common grounds on their hatred. And their hatred was for Jesus. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he was disrupting their religious agenda. The Herodians hated Jesus because he threatened their political arrangements. And the bottom line was that they both wanted him dead, and so they were happy to partner together toward that end. So let's read together, beginning in Luke chapter 20 and verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up on the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now, how are they going to catch Jesus in something that was worthy of death according to their laws? That's the question here. Well, their plan is to send spies from each camp, both the Pharisees and the Herodians. And Luke writes that as they came, they were going to pretend to be sincere. So the plan was, we will see, to come to Jesus, and they're going to try to unfold a bunch of questions. And in asking those questions with all sincerity that they could fake, they would just continue to bring up these moral conundrums that they thought would lead Jesus into saying something by which they could bring him before the governor and he would be tried and killed. So realize their goal wasn't to try and ask questions that Jesus could answer to help them, obviously, or the people around them. They weren't asking questions in which could be answered straightforwardly without putting him in a precarious place. Rather, they were sort of gotcha questions in which he could answer either positively or negatively and would have, as a result, for them something to charge him with. They were questions like, when did you decide to stop beating your wife? Well, if you think about that, no answer to that is a very good answer, right? It leaves you in a precarious place. There's no out. These are the kinds of questions they're asking Jesus. And even worse than that is that it's all under the guise of sincerity. It's, just, it's with words of flattery. We've been looking at this a bit in Sunday school. Proverbs twenty six twenty eight says, A flattering mouth works ruin. Their questions weren't an attempt to learn. They weren't an attempt to hear Jesus' side of an issue. They were trying to back him into the corner so they could kill him. One commentator writes, Flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his back. How ingratiating their language was. Like puffs from a perfume bottle. Poof. Teacher, you're always right. Poof. Preacher, you don't play favorite, favorites, you show us the true way. 
How sweet it seemed. But the destruction of Jesus was the only real thing on their hearts. And so they asked their question. Look at what it is. Verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And perhaps you can quickly discern the dilemma they are seeking to present here. Think of the two groups. The question is really about paying taxes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the Roman government? If Jesus says no, it's not lawful to give tribute to Caesar, he's clearly in violation of Roman law and can be tried and killed for insurrection against Caesar. This would be at the hands of the Herodians. They would drag him before Pilate. He would be tried as one who is seeking to overthrow the legitimacy and the authority of the Roman government. However, if he says, yes, it is lawful to give tribute to Caesar. If Jesus says it's a good thing to give taxes to the Romans, the Pharisees would quickly rise up, tell everyone that Jesus is in cahoots with the Romans and supports Rome, not Israel, And therefore, they should have nothing to do with him. And in fact, he was an enemy of Israel and should therefore be killed. You see how wicked and pernicious their plot is? The Herodians and the Pharisees absolutely, positively disagree and hate one another on this very issue that they raise for Jesus. Nevertheless, they're they're gladly allowing one or the other to haul Jesus off and murder him if he answers opposed to their very idea of what's true. Even though under any other circumstances, they'd be completely opposed to one another in their findings. But you see, clearly justice here was not the issue. It wasn't justice, it it wasn't fairness, it wasn't truth. It was blood. And they were out to find it. In their minds, they were out to find it no matter what. And look how they do it. Remember in the previous passage, Jesus stumped the people who were around him with a similar type of question. He put them in the position to have to answer this moral conundrum. And in doing so, he silenced them. Remember in verse 3, he asked, Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven... Or from man? Remember, they thought about it, and and as they thought about how they were going to answer, they knew one answer would lead them uh, being stoned to death by the people because they believed that John was a prophet. However, if they answered the other way, they would be exposed as false teachers and hypocrites because they didn't believe John. So what did they do? Well, they responded by saying, we don't know. So what are they doing now? Well, they're trying to take Jesus' way of answering a question and using it themselves. But does it work? Are they able to present to him a similar moral dilemma in which he's completely unable to answer them in the way that will keep him from being wronged in the end? Look at verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Clearly, wisdom is not what the Pharisees and the Herodians had anticipated. 
Jesus detected their trickery, and so he asked them to hand him a coin, a denarius. A denarius was a silver coin. It was considered a fair day's worth of pay for a common laborer. It could purchase about 15 pounds of wheat. The coins had a picture on it. It was of Caesar. There was also an inscription on it which said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus himself, now Augustus. Out of deference to their religious beliefs, the Roman occupiers allowed the Jews to also mint their own coins without images of people on them. It's still possible today you come across from time to time and see ancient Israeli coins decorated with emblems from nature, ears of corn and vine leaves and palm branches and such things. But the one thing they didn't have were portraits. Why? Because the Jews believed it was against the second commandment. It was idolatry. However, there were also many Roman coins in circulation. And this coin... The, the, the fact that they had the coin indicates the, the reach and the extent of the rule of Rome. Coinage bearing the image of the rule of a nation was used as a sign of that nation's authority over those nations that were subject to it. So in a sense, the rule of a nation extended as far as their coins. If they were being used, they were admitting to the fact that they were under that rule. These coins also carried with them the notion of the divinity of the emperor, something which was utterly repugnant to the Jews as it should have been. And so you can see the moral dilemma they're trying to create for Jesus alongside the absolute hypocrisy of their actions having joined together Pharisee and Herodian. But look at the wise genius of Jesus here. Pointing to this coin, he asks, whose picture and inscription is on this coin? And they answer, Caesar's. Caesar's image and inscription on the coin signified that they were under Caesar's legal political authority. It didn't mean they liked it. It didn't mean they enjoyed it, but they couldn't deny it. It was true. They were under the authority of the Roman Empire, and they were obligated, according to God's law, to obey the civil magistrates whenever possible. And since Caesar's picture was on the coin, they had to pay the tax. And I will tell you, the tax they had to pay was incredibly unjust. But Jesus telling them to render unto Caesar his tax in and of itself wasn't enough. But the clear thing to Jesus' audience that's missed by us because of what this coin signified is something of the worship of the king. So it wasn't at all appropriate that Jesus would just give credence uh, to paying tax because he would also in doing so say it was appropriate for this kind of worship of the king, this worship of Caesar. If Jesus were to say they should obey, obey Caesar at every point... Again, he'd be guilty of speaking blasphemy, and the Jews would still say uh, that he should be murdered. If, however, he were to tell the people not to pay the tribute, the chief priests and the scribes could report him to the Roman authorities, and the Herodians certainly would. But again, Jesus outwits them, and he divides the question up very neatly. Notice how he says this. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In other words, give Caesar his coins. 
They are his. Give God his worship and your devotion and your obedience. So you see, as Jesus instructs them here, let it be that you give to God his due in spiritual things and to Caesar his due and temporal things. There's, there's no reason for collision between the demands of the temporal and the heavenly kings here. In temporal things, let us obey our earthly king, under whose authority they allowed themselves to be. In spiritual things, let us do as our forefathers had done, and obey God, the eternal king. And so how do the people respond? Verse 26 Luke tells us, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is kind of a common pattern, isn't it? Jesus keeps silencing these, these fools. This is twice in a row now. They've, they've done the same thing. They strike at Jesus. He levels them into silence. He truly is wisdom incarnate. Now, all of this is important as we continue in the journey with Jesus toward the cross through the Gospel of Luke. Luke is painting this this big picture that what's about to come is the height of injustice. They found nothing on which to indict Jesus. And yet they continue to push, they continue to pursue, they continue to hate, they continue to seek to kill Jesus. And in the end, we will see they eventually resort to trumped-up charges that will assure them the opportunity to destroy their common foe. And so we need to pay attention to all of these details. We need to understand how these passages are fitting together here. But let's also consider what's in this passage to help us this morning. What is the application of this text in our individual Christian lives and in this church and in our families because the story itself is fairly straightforward. One of the things that's become very clear to me and I hope to all of us as we've worked through the Gospel of Luke is this idea of a dual citizenship. As Christians, we are citizens of two kingdoms, namely the kingdom of God or what we call the redemptive kingdom And the kingdom that we live on here on the earth, or the common kingdom. The responsibility of the church is to attend to the business of the redemptive kingdom. And in doing so, does not trample on the authority of the common kingdom institutions. In other words, the church doesn't have the task of instituting laws and punishing crimes. And unlike the institutions of the world, the common kingdom, the church's authority is derived from Scripture alone. Unfortunately, quite often Christians tend to get lopsided on all this, and we tend to want to put our eggs all in one basket or the other. But the the Bible seems to paint for us a different picture. We need to have a very balanced view on how we hold this idea of a dual citizenship. Scripture requires us, the Bible calls us to have a very high view of creation and cultural activity. And yet we make a very sharp distinction between those things which are the holy things of Christ's heavenly kingdom and the common things of this present world. The common kingdom of the earth, through its educational, vocational, artistic, and political institutions, have been ordained by God 
and they are legitimate and they are profitable and they should be pursued and engaged in by Christians. But the common kingdom is not the redemptive kingdom. The kingdom of God proclaimed by the Lord Jesus Christ is not built through politics, through commerce, through music, through sports, or anything else of that nature. Redemption does not consist of people fulfilling the original task of Adam. No, Jesus Christ has fulfilled the original task of Adam, and we rest fully in his work and in his life. Now, both of these things are important, but they're uniquely defined, and we should not confuse the two of them. So I want to spend the remainder of our time reflecting on three implications of what Jesus is telling us here and thinking through the overall teaching of the Bible in relationship to the two kingdoms. There's certainly more than three things we could derive from this, but we're just going to focus on three. The first is this. Christians have an obligation to be good citizens of the common kingdom. When Jesus here instructs those around him to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, he is calling them to be good citizens of the common kingdom. In the most simple terms, he's telling them to pay their taxes. A pertinent reminder to all of us this time of year, right? But this is really an important part of the overall call on the Christian as to how we live here and now. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet is giving the people instructions on how they are to live while they're in Babylonian captivity. It's not their home. It's it's not where they're going to be for generations to come. However, it is where they are residing at the time. It's the kingdom they are under at the time. And so what's God's instruction to them? Jeremiah 29 says this, verses 5 through 7. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now listen to this. He says this. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You see, he's telling them to seek the good of the city in which they reside, but they're in captivity, they're in Babylon. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul exhorts the Christians at Thessalonica, Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So you see, as Christians in this common kingdom, we're not distinguished from the rest of men by country or language or customs. In other words, nowhere are we called to create our own cities and dwell in those by ourselves. We're not called to use some strange form of speech or to wear different clothes, so long as they're modest, or to eat different food or to have Christian coffee houses and grocery stores and shopping malls. What this doesn't mean, though, is that we live lives of worldliness. That's another issue altogether. But we live in the same culture as our neighbors, We share the same things. We suffer in the same ways. 
we receive the same common grace. So what does this mean for us? It means, as Christians, a few different things. First, it means that as Christians, we ought to work very hard in our vocations for an honest wage, and as much as we don't like it, that we pay our taxes to the common kingdom because we are under its earthly authority. So while we are on the earth, we will obey laws and work for the good of the city. In fact, Christians should be the hardest workers, the most loyal employees. And this also rightly includes participation in the institutions of the common kingdom without being unnecessarily divisive or combative. Should we engage in the political process as Christians? Yes, absolutely. Why? Because it has a great bearing on the justice, peace, and prosperity of the world. And those are all Christian concerns. Right now in our culture, it has a great deal to do with religious freedom. Our ability to freely proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ without hindrance. As well as conducting ourselves in the culture as Christians without fear of persecution or imprisonment. These are issues being discussed right now in the political institutions. Just a case in the Supreme Court just this last week. Now, we know that these are going on. What we may not know is that we should be involved. However, we need to be careful. We should not exalt these institutions as a means of ushering in the redemptive kingdom of heaven or thinking that heaven's going to come to earth. It has its place in our lives. We should take it seriously. However, it's not ultimate. Civil government and civil magistrates exist by God's appointment and with his blessing. Yet, we have to remember, like all other matters in the common kingdom, these things are temporary, they're provisional, and they're passing. Christians should hold things like political office. Christians should be lawyers and judges and policemen and all of these things. But we still hold all of it in its proper balance. So, for us, in the heat of political movements, when Christians can get so excited or down about the latest news from Washington, D.C., or feel so jubilant or depressed about the latest election results, we must maintain a proper perspective on these things. It's crucial. That's to remember that the common kingdom is a fleeting reality. We should desire to work for civil government promoting justice, but whatever justice it achieves is the justice of the common kingdom. It is not the redemptive kingdom proclaimed by Christ. Secondly, Christians have an obligation to be faithful citizens of the redemptive kingdom. Since the common kingdom is a fleeting reality, we must keep constantly before us the reality that while we pass our days on this earth, we're simply moving closer toward the ultimate realization that we've been granted citizenship in heaven. Hebrews 13, 14 tells us, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is yet to come. It's the heavenly city. Jesus tells those around him, render to God the things that are God's. 
What does that mean? It means I worship God alone. Not the political process, not the celebrities of our culture, not the gods of man, but the one true and living God. Additionally, I am now, right now, I'm a citizen of the redemptive kingdom, just as much as I'm a citizen of the United States of America. And so I live as a member of that new society. I live a life consumed by the fruit of the Spirit. So while I do all of these things that I do in this common kingdom, I do them with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I live as one who seeks to fulfill all that God has commanded me, Because he's given me new life to live in Jesus Christ. I live as one whose ultimate hope is not wrapped up in what happens here and now. Do I care about it? Yes. Should I be involved in it? Yes, absolutely. Does it control me? Does it define me? Does it determine my hope and joy? Not at all. And so this works itself out very practically in that there will be things that are legal in the common kingdom which are clearly sinful and wrong for me to do as a citizen of the redemptive kingdom. So, for example, it is not illegal in the United States any longer for a man and a woman to commit adultery or for two unmarried people to engage in fornication. However, it is clearly a violation of the law of God. So, as a citizen of the redemptive kingdom, I am obligated, here and now, as one whose heart has been transformed, to want to honor God and submit to what he's commanded, that I will submit to God's law and not simply find a way out in the law of the land, regardless of the legality of the situation in this common kingdom. So, here's what we see in this passage in Luke. The coin belonged to Caesar because it bore his image. We, as human beings, belong to God because we bear his image. This wouldn't have been lost on Jesus' listeners. They would have made this connection. Every human being we learn from the very beginning of the Bible is cast in the image of God. And the inscription on every human life should remind us of God's ownership. And while the image is marred by sin and while many reject it completely in their enmity with God, as Christians we bear that image as his children, as his citizens, and as his kingdom dwellers. So we must render unto God what is God's. And as his children we will joyfully and willingly and obediently do that to bring him glory to live the lives he's designed for us so that we could experience true peace and joy as members of the redemptive kingdom. There's a lot there, but I want to get us to the final implication here, and that's this. As you think of the common kingdom and the redemptive kingdom at play at the same time, we have to remember this. Thirdly, the redemptive kingdom always wins. As citizens of the common kingdom, and the redemptive kingdom of God, we will encounter circumstances that cause us to not only walk in the way of Jesus Christ, but also to directly oppose that which is promoted in the common kingdom. 
There's a time for Christians to courageously stand in civil disobedience. One of the best examples of this in the scriptures is young Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel was a loyal and good citizen in the common kingdom under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. He worked hard. He proved himself to be wise and industrious as a man over and over and over again. Daniel was a model citizen under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. However, when he and his friends were commanded to bow down to the king, or when Daniel was told he had to cease praying to God, he courageously refused. And he honored God in the end. Remember, we'll cast you into the fiery furnace. What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? We don't care. We are not honoring any but the one true and living God. He'll rescue us. But even if he doesn't, he's our God and we will worship no other. Brothers and sisters, sometimes when we are forced to stand on the truth of God's word in opposition to the world, it will affect our jobs It may affect our income. It may affect our influence. In extreme cases, it may affect our freedom or even our very lives. But the redemptive kingdom is everlasting and it always wins. So while we must always strive to do what we can to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, our greater obligation is to render unto God what is God's and not bow our knee to the idols of this world. But here's the problem for many people. This is the problem for some of you this morning. It's that you live your life all wrapped up in the common kingdom and give no thought to redemption because you're not citizens of the redemptive kingdom. It's this far away and distant land in your mind, even as I talk about it, and you have nothing to do with it. So you spend your life rendering everything onto this world. Caesar's your king. And if you're honest, you will admit that you are your own Caesar. We all reject the true king who is Christ when we try to run our own lives without him. But we fail because of our nature. We are all born with a nature to rebel against authority and especially ultimate cosmic divine authority. And when we come into this world, we only have one enemy. Our only enemy when we come into this world is God. And while God is patient and loving and gracious as our king, he will not let us rebel forever. A just judge does not allow our constant rebellion to go unjudged. God's judgment against our rebellion is death and everlasting ruin in hell. However, we don't have to go to hell. We don't have to be rebels. God has made a way. And if you are not a Christian this morning, I hope that you'll hear me. Because of the great love with which God loves his people, he sent his son Jesus into the world to live under God's rule, to fulfill all that God has commanded with sinless perfection because you and I cannot do it. From the second he was born as a man unto even this very moment, Jesus Christ has never once sinned. Not a sinful thought, not a sinful deed. 
Jesus was wrongfully tried and murdered on a cross, and in doing so, received in himself the penalty that's due to you and I for the forgiveness of our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For the Christian, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are counted against Jesus, not us. His righteousness then, his right standing before God, is counted to us. It's a great exchange. After his death, Jesus rose from the dead, and he took his seat, having ascended into heaven, as the great ruler of all the world, as the king of the redemptive kingdom. Jesus has conquered death, and now he gives life to those who trust in him. And he will one day return to judge, finally and completely. So we're all left with either seeking to live our own way, rejecting our ruler God, seeking to run our own lives in the way that we want with the result of condemnation and death and judgment. Or we submit to, the, to Jesus as our king, relying on his perfect life, his sinner's death, and his glorious resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins and everlasting life. Jesus was very clear. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And that's an important responsibility that all of us have, Christian or not. But what Jesus said, secondly, is of most importance. To God, what is God's? You are created in his image. Will you render all of your life and allegiance unto him? Is Jesus your everlasting king? Let's pray. Father, we pray as your people, as a people who live in this common world as citizens of your redemptive kingdom. And so we pray, Father, that you help us to keep all of this in proper perspective. That as Jesus himself has instructed us in your word, that we would Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That we would be good citizens, hard workers, industrious, a people who seeks the good of our city. And in doing so, Father, we pray that you help us to be faithful citizens of the redemptive kingdom. A people whose lives are controlled by the fruit of the Spirit. A people who Whose, whose lives are controlled by a desire to glorify you, to see Christ exalted, and to see the gospel spread far and wide. Our great longing, God, our great longing is to see more and more people who are neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, to enter into the citizenship that we enjoy as your people. I pray for those this morning here, Lord, who aren't Christians, that you would help them to see the folly of their own ways, that you would help them to see their enmity with you, and that you would give them the desire to be reconciled to you 
Send the Holy Spirit, O God. Awaken them to new life in Christ that they may live forever. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for the instruction that comes by your word that we may live as a faithful people. May it be that we honor you this week with our lives, with our words, and with our worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen.